1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC, and here's your top five at five. Stocks are shaking off fears over Omicron, with the major averages rallying and sliding into the green for the week. For the futures, they're falling flat this morning. The Biden administration looking up to ramp the fight against COVID, laying out a series of new steps to try and stem the rampant spread of the virus. We're live in Washington for the details. Amid that surge, another major American company announcing its decision to delay the return to the office. The White House set to offer a status report on its efforts to combat the global supply chain crunch with a number of high-level CEOs joining the president on the matter today. And SoftBank, reportedly looking for a major cash infusion as it tries to navigate turbulence in its portfolio. It is Wednesday, January 22nd and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Sima Modi in for Brian Sullivan at this hour. Here's a look at how your money and global markets are setting up for the day. Stock futures indicating a lower open. The Dow is currently down about 38 points. NASDAQ lower by 65. This after the major averages rallied Tuesday following Monday's sell-off. The Dow and S&P up more than 1.5 percent, while the NASDAQ surged nearly 2.5 percent. But take a look at the small cap benchmark. The Russell 2000, the big winner, surging. Uh, nearly 3% for its best day since late July. With yesterday's gains, the major averages are now positive for the week. The S&P up more than half a percent. Technology has really been leading the rebound, with the Nasdaq up over 1%. Now, this move higher in stocks could hinge on the direction of rates. Right now, we're looking at the 10-year note yielding just below 1.5% at 1.4, the two-year at 0.67%. Also having a look at oil, uh, bouncing back a bit despite concerns of the Omicron hitting energy demand. WTI crude up a half a percent at $71.49. Ice brand crude, you can see, also higher by around four-tenths of one percent. Let's go over to Juliana for the latest. Excuse me, we'll go over to Bertha Coombs for the latest on the top stories this morning. Bertha, good morning.
3: Hey, good morning, Sema. President Biden is set to convene his task force on the global supply chain crunch later today. The panel, which will feature the heads of the commerce, labor and transportation departments, will announce significant progress on efforts to alleviate bottlenecks that have led to the issues. That includes the number of containers sitting on docks for more than a week, dropping by nearly 50 percent. A number of private sector executives are also slated to attend the meeting, including FedEx CEO Fred Smith and Gap CEO Sony Singal. Wells Fargo, meantime, is apparently the latest major company to delay plans for workers to return to the office amid Omicron's spread. According to reports, the bank is doing so, citing, quote, the changing external environment. Wells Fargo had set a January 10th deadline for a mandatory return for many of its employees. The bank reportedly says it will announce new plans for that full return, in the new year. And SoftBank is apparently finalizing a $4 billion loan from a group led by Apollo Global Management. That according to reports, that loan would be secured by SoftBank's second vision fund. Those reports add that the apparent deal between the pair highlights SoftBank's need for more cash and Apollo's bid to enter the lending space. In November, SoftBank reported a $3.5 billion quarterly loss Hurt by China's crackdown on tech companies. Seema?
2: Always something interesting happening with SoftBank, isn't it? Bertha, thank you. We'll check back with you in the next part of the show. Now to the latest on the growing spread of COVID in the country. President Biden announcing new steps by his administration to fight the rise in case figures, including distributing half a billion at-home rapid tests. NBC News, Alice Barr joining us now from Washington with the latest. Alice, good morning.
4: Good morning, Seema. Hospitals already stretched in from battling the Delta surge are now staring down a crushing new flow of patients. But despite the signs looking alarmingly like the early pandemic, President Biden insists that vaccines and treatments mean we are better prepared for what's ahead. With the highly contagious Omicron variant driving a challenging new phase of the war against COVID, President Biden rolling out a new battle plan.
5: We all want this to be over, but we're still in it. This is a critical moment.
4: Amid surging demand and long lines for COVID tests before Christmas. Frustrating to say the least. The president announcing new testing sites and a plan to start mailing 500 million free at-home tests to anyone who requests one. He's also sending 1,000 military members to support overburdened hospital staff and deploying FEMA to
5: build overflow capacity. we stockpiled enough gowns, masks and ventilators. To deal with the surge of hospitalizations among the unvaccinated. Today we're ready.
4: President Biden acknowledging there will be breakthrough cases from Omicron while stressing the protection vaccines and critically boosters provide against severe illness.
5: Almost everyone who has died from COVID-19 in the past many months has been unvaccinated.
4: Now, as signs of the early pandemic reemerge from pro sports leagues postponing games to mayors cracking down with new mask mandates and in Chicago, a vaccine requirement for indoor public spaces, the president and top health officials insisting this is not March of 2020,
1: where we had to lock down, not see anyone else. We have more tools
4: now. Tools we'll need as America braces for the worst of the Omicron surge. President Biden is facing sharp criticism for not acting sooner, especially to expand access to testing. The president defended the response, saying Omicron is spreading more quickly than anticipated while insisting the administration is ready. Sema,
2: Yeah, we'll see how closely or how quickly rather they can ramp up testing. I know in New York especially. How, Alice, would you say uh, public health experts are responding to the president's plans?
4: Well, there has been some response saying that this is not going far enough. You know, there are some that are sort of bemoaning the fact that uh, the the public at large just doesn't seem prepared to go through another lockdown. President Biden has made clear that that's not part of his plans to have you know the sort of widespread at stay-at-home policies. But uh, given how quickly this is spreading, there are those in the public health community who say that would be the right response, and that really we don't yet know how severe Omicron cases are going to be, so they're a little concerned about sort of the widespread uh, feelings that this is milder, that it may perhaps be too soon to say that for sure, and that we should be back in flatten the
2: curve mode. Sina. Alice, thank you so much. Alice Barr of NBC News. Back on Wall Street, stocks searching for direction after their best day in nearly two weeks. But according to our next guest, there's been two major shifts in the market that could make days like yesterday feel fewer and farther between. Joining me now is Joseph Ami, Managing Director at Zor Capital. And Joseph, it's good to see you this morning. You've been relatively bullish on this stock market, but just recently you become a bit more cautious. I'm I'm curious what you're seeing in the market internals that suggest people should be less optimistic about where stocks go from here.
5: Yeah, no, thank you for having me. As you mentioned, since the uh, April of 2020 lows, I've been bullish for uh, two main reasons, the strong technicals in the market and the accommodative Federal Reserve. And uh, I've discussed it several times on this network for the in regards to the Fed, for example, right after the pandemic, in the six weeks following the pandemic, they did more treasury buying uh, in those six weeks than they did in the nine years combined from 2009 to 2018. Then they continued with that 120 billion in bond purchases and have kept interest rates at near zero. So regarding the Fed, They've provided tons of liquidity and a very equity-friendly environment. Now, regarding the technicals, they've been very strong. The 10-week moving average is sort of an area of institutional support. All the major indices and a lot of the leading growth stocks have held that level. Now, over the past two to three weeks, those two major factors have changed a little bit. With the Fed tapering their bond purchases uh, a little bit more of a hawkish tone and the market pricing in uh, rate hikes rate hikes next year. And then regarding the technicals, a lot of the uh, averages and leading stocks are starting to break down a little bit below that key average. So my conclusion is just to be defensive over the near term, not necessarily bearish, just a little bit cautious and defense and defensive until those two factors Uh, come back again, and the market shows better signs of health.
2: I think on the Fed, many would say that the the moves from Jerome Powell and what he announced was well telegraphed, and you would sort of expect rates to to move higher from here. But as you say, you're recommending investors to get more defensive. Which sectors, specifically utilities, healthcare. I mean, these are sectors that really haven't done well so far this year, Joseph.
5: Yeah, that's part of why the S&P has held up very well, where the average growth stock is is doing much worse than the S&P because of that sector rotation. So to your point of the 11 major sectors in the S&P 500, healthcare, utilities, consumer staples, those have done a little bit better, which is fine. And that's helping to keep the averages uh, muted from some of that volatility. But those, in my view, are a little bit more defensive sectors. So uh, you can see there's been a shift to that. Um, And also, we could have a 2018 scenario where the Fed doesn't have to raise rates. Maybe they're just hawkish and then the market corrects and then they can return to a dovish stance or kind of, uh, you know, take back some of that hawkish language. But for now, when I see too many defensive sectors leading, it's just telling me uh, to be defensive.
2: And what are your thoughts on energy here, Joseph, with oil up about a half a percent right now, above 70 dollar weaker? Is this a trend that continues?
5: Yeah, seasonally uh, energy does well over the summer and, and we saw that big surge in energy and we also had that mean reversion because it was down last year uh, as demand was slower and it's starting to pick up. I could see it stabilizing around here. I think it's, uh, you know, it seems to be a pretty steady sector for now.
2: And lastly, do you have a top pick within technology? All of these names from Apple to Facebook rallied yesterday, yesterday and I guess the question is whether it can hold.
5: Yeah, Apple for sure is one of the strongest mega caps out there. And I would also say the semiconductor sector uh, as a whole within growth seems to be holding up the best. Uh, so that's the sector that uh, within growth is is doing very well.
2: Although Meta and Apple are down right now in pre-market. Joseph, good to see you. Joseph Fami. Thank you. When we come back on Worldwide Exchange, European leaders implementing new measures to clamp down on rising COVID case figures across the block. We'll get a live report from the region. Plus, a number of high-profile tech companies bowing out of the world's largest electronic show amid COVID concerns. And later, as more companies delay the return to the office for their workers, what it could mean for commercial real estate and that sector there, as a large number of office buildings sit empty. A very busy hour still ahead when worldwide exchange returns.
6: What does it mean to be rich?
2: Welcome back. Leaders across Europe are reimposing COVID restrictions amid the continued spread of Omicron. Portugal has said that working from home will be mandatory over the Christmas and New Year's holidays and that bars and clubs will be shut down beginning Saturday. Outdoor gatherings will be limited to 10 people. Germany announcing it will take similar steps as it faces another massive wave of COVID, Annetta Weisbach joining us from Frankfurt with those new details that are coming in from Germany on what steps you guys are taking over there to to manage this COVID risk, Annetta.
8: Essentially, we have a divided society. On the one side, we have the vaccinated people who are also now seeing restrictions kicking in from December 28th. Only 10 people are allowed to uh, mingle. And at the same time, also like sporting events and other big events will also be cancelled for the foreseeable future and uh, other uh, indoor um, events will only run at 30 to 50 percent capacity so it remains to be seen how they want to Uh, enact that. But for the unvaccinated, it's a complete lockdown. They can't enter shops, restaurants, nothing at all. And that, of course, is because the government wants to drive people into vaccination. Um, And there might be a mandatory vaccination kicking in by February. But Parliament will, first of all, have to decide on that. And parliamentary session, the first, will only start middle of uh, January.
2: What's your sense on that front, Annetta, whether uh, vaccines will be mandated and help us understand what percentage of Germany's population is vaccinated right now?
8: Actually, we have quite a low level of vaccination, roughly 70 percent got two jabs right now, and there's not a lot of progress. And that is why scientific scientists here on the ground are calling for mandatory vaccination. We have a thing which is called uh, Ethic Council in Germany, and they are also now Um, they are also now saying that mandatory vaccination should be the way forward. So, of course, that will be uh, dividing the uh, society even further. We have seen protests over the weekends, especially in the south of Germany and and the east of Germany, where vaccination levels are even lower than the 70 percent. But what happens next is, as I was saying, um, a parliamentary session, a parliamentary vote on whether This can uh, be enshrined in law. And then the hope is from the government, from the new German government, that mandatory vaccination could start as soon as February here in the country.
2: Wow. Uh, Just fascinating to watch every country and the different responses we're seeing right now. Annetta, thank you for bringing us the latest from Frankfurt. Annetta Weisbach.
8: Thank you.
0: Merry Christmas.
2: The head of one major airline calling on the CDC to slash quarantine time for those with breakthrough COVID cases. The argument he's making for that move.
8: Today's big number, $7.7 billion. That's the amount of money lost to crypto scams this year, according to data from Chainalysis. That's up 81% over 2020.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery, Packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron.
6: Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53 below the 2016 baseline they're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies including drones and satellites that's energy in progress learn more at chevron.com slash methane live
2: shot there rainy times square new york Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories moving right now. First up is Intel. Intel's China, the China's uh, antitrust regulator, approving the company's $9 billion sale of its NAND memory chip business to SK Hynix. But with conditions, this clears the way for Hynix, which is the world's second largest memory chip maker, to complete the required regulatory approvals from all eight countries impacted by the deal, Intel down about four tenths of one percent. Next up is BlackBerry. Revenue topping forecast in the third quarter, boosted by strong demand for its cybersecurity and Internet of Things products. But shares are lower as BlackBerry projects fourth quarter cybersecurity revenue to come in below analyst estimates. Stock three is Tesla. Elon Musk says he sold enough stock to reach his plan to sell 10 percent of his stake in the company. Musk sold another 538,000 shares yesterday, bringing the total amount he's offloaded to $13.5 million. Now, in an interview with website Babylon B, Musk also slamming California for overtaxation. He moved Tesla's headquarters member to Texas earlier this month after his personal move to the Lone Star State last year. All right, still on deck. The Biden administration looking to provide further relief for those saddled with college loan debt. The steps the White House is taking to help ease the financial burden. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We will be right back. The Tuesday turnaround losing steam as stocks struggle to hold on to the momentum. Futures are under pressure this morning. The Biden administration announcing new steps to try and stop the growing spread of COVID. As millions of Americans gear up to gather for the holidays, the latest on what you need to know about the virus and the potential increase of risk. And amid that rapid rise in COVID cases, a number of high profile attendees pulling the plug on their appearances at the world's largest electronic showcase. More on that. It is Wednesday, December 22nd, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Let's look at money and your investments and where stocks are shaping up halfway through the 5 a.m. hour here on the East Coast. Stock futures, we are lower. The Dow down 20 points. Nasdaq lower by 58. This after the major averages staged a big rally yesterday following Monday's sell-off. It's been quite volatile, hasn't it? The Dow and S&P now up more than 1.5%, while the Nasdaq surged about 2.5% in yesterday's trade. But I want to draw your attention to the small-cap benchmark Russell 2000 index. That was the big winner, surging nearly 3% for its best day Since late July, as our own Mike Santoli points out, yesterday's bump uh, bump was S&P having revisiting the 50 day moving average, an area that ended pullbacks up until September. And it's only 2 percent away from fresh records. So that's a key metric to watch the 50 day. Also want to get a look at several stocks that were beat up and are now making a comeback. Names like Coupa down about 21 percent in a month, but up 6 percent this week. Wayfair down 20 percent in a month but up 1.3% this week. DraftKings, you can see down about 17% in three months, but up about 9% this week and just 8% yesterday. Now to more of this morning's top stories. Bertha Coombs is back with those. Bertha.
3: Seema, the Biden administration, is weighing a potential extension for the moratorium on federal student loan payments. Currently, that moratorium is slated to expire at the end of next month. The administration, which for weeks has said it would stick to that deadline, is mulling the move amid the surge in Omicron cases and the potential threat to the economic recovery. A spokesperson for the Education Department says the White House will announce whether it will extend that pause further later this week. A growing number of high-profile companies are scrapping their public appearances at this year's Consumer Electronics Show over COVID concerns. T-Mobile CEO Mike Sievert, who was one of the event's featured keynote speakers, has announced that his company will not be attending the event in person. It joins the likes of Meta, Twitter, Pinterest, and iHeartRadio in announcing their decisions to opt out of the summit. Amazon also reportedly making a similar move. And Delta's CEO is asking the CDC to shorten its quarantine guidelines for breakthrough cases of COVID for those who are fully vaccinated. Ed Bastian, along with the airline's medical advisor and chief health officer, are calling for the current time frame of 10 days to be reassessed. They argue in a letter that the guidelines were developed during a time when effective COVID vaccines and treatments weren't available. The Delta team is arguing that fully vaccinated individuals only be made to isolate for five days after they begin to experience symptoms. You know, Seema Anthony Fauci in an interview suggested that for healthcare workers, they might shorten the time that perhaps those who have been fully vaccinated and boosted could actually go back to work. You know, if they are protected with PPE. So, this is something that right now may yeah. be debated. And certainly given that we do have more people with boosters could create uh, less of a disruption.
2: Yeah, it's a big question. How long do you need to be quarantined if you've been exposed, but you're boosted and you've had those three shots? It's a great question. I know a lot of companies too are trying to figure that out. Bertha.
3: It just depends on how long you're contagious.
2: There you go. For others, Yeah, which we need to figure out. Bertha, great to see you. Thank you so much for that. Let's stick with the COVID situation. AstraZeneca and Oxford say they're aiming to develop a version of their vaccine that specifically targets the Omicron variant. AstraZeneca joining Pfizer and Moderna, who are also working on variant-specific vaccines. Meanwhile, Israel has already begun a rollout of a fourth COVID vaccine dose for people over 60, medical professionals and people with compromised immune systems. Anyone who has received a third dose at least four months ago is eligible for the new shot. In the U.S., Chicago, the latest city to require proof of vaccination in restaurants, bars and other indoor venues as the city grapples with a spike in COVID cases. That new rule won't go into effect until January 3rd. New York City also continuing its battle with cases. Mayor de Blasio announcing a hundred dollar incentive for booster shots until the end of the year, as well as new testing sites across the city. Broadway League announcing that there are no plans to shut down Broadway as a whole at this time, despite 13 shows currently being temporarily closed due to cases. Joining us now is Dr. Uche Blackstock, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity and an MSNBC medical contributor. Doctor, it's good to have you on today. First, your thoughts on Israel now saying, you know what, for those above 60, you can get a fourth shot. How far are we away here in the U.S. from um, offering the
7: same to U.S. citizens? Uh, Good morning, Seema. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I I think Israel has been ahead of us uh, for quite a while in terms of of vaccination. And even though the data on this fourth dose is, is not there, they're seeing a rise in cases. And they know that there is waning immunity at about four to six months after a booster. So it does make sense. And I see it possibly happening here in the US probably within months.
2: You know, what really is striking to me, Dr. Blackstock, is uh, the different responses from countries so far. In Europe, uh, many countries sort of implementing some pretty serious lockdowns. Germany setting limits, gatherings to 10 people, nightclubs and bars in Portugal will be shut from Saturday. Sweden introducing new measures as hospitalizations uh, increase there. Here in the U.S., no major lockdowns have been implemented, but I'm curious if you think that could be something states
7: assess over time. I mean, I I do think it's something that states should strongly consider. I mean, the U.S. really has never even seen true shutdowns. And we have this variant that is incredibly uh, transmissible. We're seeing cases rise exponentially. So it may be something in terms of mask policies, capacity restrictions, um, other types of protections, I like to call them versus restrictions, that we may need to implement over the next few weeks, if cases continue to rise, I would say, especially in unvaccinated areas. Even
2: though because this variant, you, doctors, suggest that it's less severe and we haven't seen a huge uptick in hospitalizations, at least at this point?
7: Right. Well, at this point, we really don't have a lot of data yet. We actually would need to, for there to be more cases to actually see if there will be an increase in hospitalizations and death. And as we know, it is a lagging indicator. So it's two to four weeks. I think we'll have that data very, very soon, but I wouldn't necessarily assume just because it's mild, because also it's incredibly contagious. So that may cause an increase overall in hospitalizations.
2: Uh, New York City yesterday rolling out this $100 incentive to get more people uh, that third shot. Do you think incentives like this should work, Dr. Blackstock, and should other cities also provide the same?
7: I think some of the studies in the past have shown that these incentives initially help a little bit, um, and then there's sort of a plateau. I think there's some people who will definitely get boosted because of this, and I think for others $100 really won't make a difference. I do think that public health messaging is incredibly important. We need to convey to people that, especially with the Omicron variant, getting boosted is incredibly important. as as well as getting fully vaccinated. And so that should really be the message to the public. These incentives may or may not help.
2: And getting these therapeutics to market, I believe the FDA is going to weigh a decision on two oral treatments treatments for uh, Mm -hmm. COVID, one from Pfizer, one from Merck. Do you think the FDA will uh, approve these two drugs? And if so, how could that have an effect on um, our ability to manage COVID going forward?
7: Right. I was actually hoping that was going to be part of Biden's announcement yesterday that they were going to fast track authorization of both of these oral antiviral pills. I mean, especially the one from Pfizer, uh, 90% uh, decrease in hospitalizations with this pill has to be given within the first five days uh, of symptoms. So incredibly effective. Another tool in our toolkit of combating COVID-19. So I'm hoping to see both of those authorized very quickly. The Pfizer one probably more likely than the Merck. The Merck one, there are, um, there are safety concerns, and it was only modestly recommended by uh, the FDA's advisory committee.
2: Yeah, that will be interesting to to watch. A decision expected today, I believe. Dr. Blackstock, your thoughts on what President Biden unveiled yesterday? Um, Just you know, once again updating the country's response to COVID with the idea that we'll be able to ramp up testing um, facilities in cities like New York that are really struggling, among other plans.
7: Right. So yeah, I'm in New York and I've seen the long lines. I've been on those long lines, and so I, I do think that ramping up testing is incredibly important. It's not going to happen overnight, and we really need it to happen very, very quickly. Testing is incredibly important for diagnosing cases and preventing spread. I think the vaccination efforts are important as well. I would have liked to see more federal guidance around mask policies that are data-driven to the states. I would have also liked to see um, more of an emphasis on getting free, high-quality masks out to all Americans. So I think it's a good start. I would have liked to see it at least be a a bit more aggressive, especially given the Omicron variant.
2: Good start. Got it. Uh, It's always great to have you on, Dr. Uche Blackstock, with the latest on the ongoing struggle with COVID. All right, now to the latest on the Democrats' push to try and salvage the nearly $2 trillion Build Back Better plan. Senate Democrats holding a special caucus meeting on the plan's next steps, including Senator Joe Manchin days after he could not support the bill in its current form. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer telling his colleagues while they may be frustrated with the outcome, they are not giving up on Build Back Better. President Biden saying he's hopeful a deal can still be reached. For more on the Democrats' next step and the bill, I'm joined by Ed Mills, Raymond James, Washington Policy Analyst. Ed, good morning to you. Morning, Sema. So yesterday, uh, President Biden ended sort of that conference with Q&A with reporters saying that he's going to work closely with Senator Joe Manchin to get this deal done. Uh, how quickly and what's the timeline?
1: You know, I think that's... Um, going to be at least a couple of months. One of the things that Senator Manchin is pushing for is for a full committee process Uh, that would push this uh, well into 2022. Um, I think we are in a situation where uh, something that happens often in D.C. is that things appear impossible right up to the moment they're inevitable. And as long as they're still talking, uh, this remains possible. We're going to have a vote pretty early on in the new year. Um, I think uh, Senator Schumer wants to have an opportunity to tell progressives that he tried, he's going to try to force the issue. Uh, They're going to be discussing things up until that vote, Uh, but it does seem like we're going to need more changes Uh, than necessary before that vote occurs, probably sometime in January uh, to get this to Joe Manchin's liking uh, in something that could probably be more in the February, March time frame at this time. But really, um, it's up to Joe Manchin what he can get uh, before he makes a decision on uh, what he can vote for. And that will clearly drive the timing. So I
2: want to ask you, you know, what is your read, Ed, on Senator Manchin? Why is he so reluctant to set to sign this bill? and And what will it take?
1: So, Seema, I think it's a couple of things. Uh, First off, um, if you look through uh, Senator Manchin's statements, you look through the uh, deal that he struck with Senator Schumer uh, earlier this year, um, he would say he is being very consistent. Um, I think he believes that Democrats um, were trying to push him further uh, than what he was comfortable with. Uh, He has been concerned with inflation. He has been concerned with geopolitical risk. He has been concerned with the development of a new variant. Uh, All of those things are happening right now and are harder for him to sign off and say yes. I also would go back to March of this year um, and he signed off on the COVID relief bill, that $1.9 trillion bill. And after he signed off, there were some things that changed and he had a push to get them further changed. I think he feels as if Democrats in his caucus tried to pull something over him, and so he's not going to sign off on everything until he's seen all of the language, uh, which I think is kind of caused a bit of doubt to creep in uh, to himself in terms of what he can say yes to. Um, and so until he sees everything, until they peer back things closer to what he's in okay with, he's not going to be able to say he's willing to sign off on anything.
2: Again, as we try to understand what's really on his mind, uh, analysts or economists rather on Wall Street are bringing down their growth forecast for the U.S. because this bill is not getting signed. Goldman Sachs, uh, among others. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the the economic effect and how that could sort of expedite talks to get this bill signed.
1: Yes, Seema. So most of the conversations we've been having with clients here at Raymond James have been um, a fact that this bill had been front loaded, that we are seeing a potential fiscal cliff in 22 as a lot of the COVID relief programs went off. And so I'm not sure if clients really um, were as focused on the individual programs, but more of the macro impact here. And because it was front loaded and it provided for a glide path down on what has been uh, unprecedented fiscal spend, SEMA, I think the market and they were looking at that as a net positive Uh, to economic growth over the next couple of years. I do think because we've seen economic forecasts cut, because we saw a market market reaction on Monday, that does put pressure on Democrats. It does put pressure on Senator Manchin to see what they can do to cut a deal to provide that glide path from here versus having the fiscal cliff that would be set up without additional relief.
2: And Ed, just quickly, the longer it takes to get this bill signed, uh, impact on midterms in 2022.
1: Seema, when I talk to Democrats here in DC, they think this is crucial. They know they're on the defensive, but I think they feel as if it would be a foregone conclusion they lose the majorities if they don't get that done. That's going to be a driving force for them to see if they can salvage something.
2: It's going to be a fascinating year for politics, 2022. Ed, thank you for joining me today. Ed Mills. Thank you, Seema. Coming up, looking for a return to normal in real estate? The broad implications the pandemic continues to have on the sector and the trends we may see in the new year. But first, as we head to break, some of your top stories right now. European natural gas prices continuing to hit new record highs as a pipeline that brings Russian gas to Germany reversed the direction of its flow back towards Russia. The drop in Russian-based natural gas comes as temperatures drop across Europe, further escalating the region's energy crisis. Credit unions are reportedly looking for approval to hold digital assets like Bitcoin directly. This according to Bloomberg, which says the request comes after a federal regulator clarified they can provide crypto services to customers by partnering with third parties. And Under Armour and the NBA star Steph Curry are teaming up to commemorate his new record as the league's all-time three-point shooter. The pair are releasing nearly 3,000 NFTs of Curry's Under Armour sneaker he was wearing when he broke the record last week. How about that? Robot Exchange. We're back in a moment. The pandemic has affected nearly every segment of the economy, and that includes the real estate market, from companies adopting flexible and hybrid work schedules to the explosion in online shopping, which has created its own issues in the supply chain and an ever-growing need for more warehouse space. Let's talk more about the sector now as we head into the new year with Calvin Schooner, Senior VP for Research at Economic Analysis at NARIT. It's great to have you on, Calvin. Uh, First, you know, as more companies sort of delay employees return to the office, how much more of a negative effect will this have on offices and commercial real estate?
9: Well, this is certainly going to delay the recovery in the office sector. The office sector is one of the few areas uh, in the REIT universe in commercial real estate, traded commercial real estate, that has not recovered fully. And that's because the returning office has been delayed. Uh, and, and I would like to point out, though, that many times people are asking the wrong question. It's really not a question of are people going back this month or next month. We keep pushing it back as the, as the pandemic has another wave of the variant. The real question is, will there be a long-term impact on the demand for commercial real estate? And here the picture is actually much more mixed or or even favorable for commercial real estate. What you need to keep in mind is that offices are still going to need to have the amount of space for the days when everyone is in the office. Many employers are embracing a flexible work-from-home type environment where people can phone in and, and do things online when they need to. But if they're going to be there on team days, collaboration days, or so on, The employers are going to need to lease the amount of space for the days when everyone is there. It'll be just less dense on other days. So that suggests that once we get past this next, I'm not sure how many months, you're going to see continued rebound in the demand for the office sector.
2: So which cities are performing better than others? others? I know tourism has picked up in New York City, for example, which is currently the hottest hotel market with an average occupancy rate of around 81%. Is New York doing better on the office front as well?
9: Well, the, the, the real difference in the hotel and lodging sector is the, the business versus the personal travel. And actually, leisure, leisure travel rebounded fairly quickly, and you can see this if you look at occupancy rates on the weekends. People were saying over Saturday night, those hotels are much closer to being full, whereas midweek, the business travelers have been slower. And, and New York has been slower there, San Francisco, many of the areas where are traditional centers for, for business activity have been slower to return, which is normal just because we're really not back to speed in terms of, of uh, interacting in public, and that includes business travel.
2: Other parts we expect of the that real to come est- in
9: the next half of the next year, though.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, I was going to say, other parts of the real estate story are working very well, and that includes industrial, self-storage. Mm-hmm. Um, how do those markets do in
9: 2022? Well, the, they're poised to continue doing quite well. Uh, some of the sectors you mentioned, the industrial, is actually the logistics sector, as part of the industrial, this is supporting the e-commerce business. They operate the parts of the supply chain that get the goods the last mile to, in position to be the last mile to consumers. Obviously that's been a very strong business plus other tech related REITs, the digital, uh, the the data centers, the cell tower REITs. Uh, What's been really interesting is they had a surge in demand early in the pandemic when everything shifted online. But that demand has continued to grow from a high level, even as the economy opens up. This is saying there are permanent changes in the way people are doing the business, they're doing their lives, permanent changes in the demand for commercial real estate. These sectors look very strong. The the logistics industrial data centers going into 2022.
2: I know there's been a lot of questions about what higher interest rates mean for residential housing. There's been this huge housing boom since the onset of the pandemic. What do you think three interest rate hikes next year mean for industrial, self-storage, these other parts of real estate?
9: Interest rates are still quite low and are likely to remain low. And what's really important for the commercial real estate sector is the long-term interest rates. And they've not moved up in... uh, in in anticipation of the Fed hikes at the short-term end of the yield curve. And that's because people are looking, many investors are looking at this inflation surge as being something that is related to the supply chain bottlenecks still, not expecting it to be leading to longer, higher long-term interest rates. Now, on top of that, REITs lowered their their leverage, lowered their interest rate exposures after the financial crisis in 2008-2009. Uh, we have data in the NAE REIT tracker on, on REIT.com that shows that leverage ratios are down significantly from where they were a decade ago. and They've locked in low interest rates uh, for, for longer term. The, the average maturity of debt is the longest that we've ever seen. So REITs are well protected for the current interest rate environment.
2: That's encouraging. Calvin, good to see you today. Thanks for joining us on All Things Real Estate. Calvin Schnurr. Thank you. On deck. Futures are fighting for gains after the market's massive rebound yesterday. RBC's Lori Calvacina lays out how to navigate the trading day. That's up next. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out, Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A quick check on stock futures after yesterday's broad-based relief rally that saw the Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq posting their best day in two weeks. The Dow is now higher in pre-market by 48 points, Nasdaq still down by around 17 points. The real outperformance, though, was in the small caps. The Russell 2000 coming off a nearly 3% advance for its best day since late July. The index still hovering more than 10% off its most recent 52-week high. But if my next guest is correct, and she sometimes is, expect that gap to narrow in the months ahead. I'm joined now by Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Lori, good morning.
6: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So what's your read on small and mid-cap stocks? These are a group of stocks that tend to be a bit more sensitive to interest rates and a stronger dollar. So I'm just curious what your read is.
6: Sure. Look, I think that small caps have been weighed down in 2021 by COVID, um, and and frankly, when the rate of change in COVID cases has been increasing all year, we've seen small cap underperformance. But we do think investors are not overly worried about Omicron. We just had a survey that came out earlier this morning that showed. The optimists far outweigh the pessimists on that issue. And basically the key thing you need to know about small caps is they are very, very cheap. They tend to outperform when the economy is running above trend. And they also tend to outperform ahead of first Fed rate hikes. So once we get through this short-term issue on Omicron, we do think the setup for small caps is very nice next year. And you should really see it benefit from some inflows as well.
2: What do you make of the market's response to Omicron thus far? Uh, your volatility is up. The dollar is weaker. Oil back above $70. Uh, Where do you see the market going from here?
6: So I think that between now and the end of the year and thankfully it's a short time period because I think we're all exhausted. um, But I think it's going to continue to be choppy. I don't expect any major moves one way or the other to be honest. Um, But I do think that the market is trying to take Omicron and try it I think it's a it's a stressful time for people. um, Just given where it's hitting. Um, But I do think the market is also digesting Fed. so I would say that some of these volatile moves that we've seen in the market particularly the sell off in technology and growth stocks I think that's really been more fed driven than virus driven. And I think I think, frankly, most investors expected variants to pop up as we exited this phase of the pandemic. Um, so I do think a lot of this angst, it's not just Omicron, I think a lot of it is the Fed.
2: If the volatility persists, um, you know, could this change the Fed's timetable and this forecast of three interest rate hikes next year, Lori?
6: Well look I think we'll have to see I think the jury is still out on that I will tell you that as I talk to equity investors and these are people who run equity focused portfolios um, a lot of them are very skeptical about the idea of a March time frame um, which has been floated by some people including our own economists and um, but they're they're sort of skeptical of this idea that the Fed will will tighten into um, you know kind of weak data that they've seen on things like retail sales they've also mentioned the non-farm payroll report and I think that the jury is still out our survey this morning showed that most people are expecting a 2Q liftoff as opposed to a 1Q liftoff. We're
2: expecting a decision from the FDA on two COVID
6: pills. Uh, Could this be a market-moving event, Lori? I think that the market has been digesting all the breadcrumbs of the COVID-related data that's been coming out, specifically on Omicron, and it's all been tilting positive for the most part. And I think that, you know, it could help at the margin. Is it going to be something entirely unexpected? No. But I do think it could help sort of Uh, cushion things between
2: between now and year end. What about U.S. GDP forecast? Goldman Sachs bringing down their estimates. We get a revision for Q3 today.
6: So, you know, it's funny. We've gotten a lot of questions about whether or not the, the, the mansion, you know, sort of end of Build Back Better, and we'll see if that happens, ends up impacting our own forecast. And we said, look, we are baking in consensus GDP numbers into our views. Um, but frankly, I'm not quite so sure that we're going to see a massive recalibration from the economic community based on Build Back Better. I was not getting the impression that most economists or buy siders were baking that into next year's forecasts anyway.
2: OK, Lori, great to see you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it on all things the market, how we're digesting the latest news on Omicron, and, of course, Build Back Better, that $2 trillion spending package. Let's take a quick look at futures right now. We're higher when you look at the Dow, uh, reversing earlier losses, up by 41 points in pre-market. NASDAQ lower by 24. Three pieces of data today. We will get that revision to Q3 GDP, consumer confidence, and existing home sales. I'm Sima Modi. That's it for us on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk box